This week's TribCast is sponsored by Invest Texas Council. P3s improve Texas's infrastructure by fostering competition, unleashing innovative solutions, and lessens the burden on taxpayers. More at investtexascouncil.com. And Texas State Technical College. Texas State Technical College is helping to rebuild Texas one new employee at a time. With 50-plus programs, we are preparing Texans to rebuild the infrastructure Texas needs. More at tstc.edu. And LBJ Presidential Library. Secret Service. Scandals, Misconduct, and Mystery. Join Pulitzer Prize winner Carol Lenig in a conversation moderated by Evan Smith on May 27th at 7 p.m. Register at lbjlibrary.org. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune TribCast for May 19th, 2021. We are 12 days from sine die in the Texas legislature. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor of News and Politics, and this week I am joined by politics reporter Patrick Svitek, healthcare reporter Karen Brooks-Harper, and our brand new politics reporter James Bettergon. Welcome, James, to the Tribune. Hey, Matthew. Good to be here. Excited. So it has been a while since we have had an executive order from Governor Greg Abbott uh, on the coronavirus pandemic, but we got one this week. This one from Greg Abbott saying basically that no government agency in Texas can require masks on their property or within their jurisdictions. Um, this is a particularly notable for the schools. Patrick, can you tell us a little bit about what happened here and why Greg Abbott put this in place? Yeah, so Abbott issued uh, his latest executive order, which uh, banned governmental entities in Texas, so entities like cities and counties, um, from issuing their own mask mandates. And this um, effectively goes into effect Friday when any governmental entity who issues or tries to issue a mask mandate would face a fine of up to $1,000. And this executive order most notably includes in governmental entities, school districts. And so uh, it kind of pushes the effective date back for school districts. But the bottom line is that uh, starting on June 5th, uh, no public schools in Texas uh, can require masks uh, on their campuses to be worn by teachers, students, or, or visitors. Um, and that is certainly a change for public schools in Texas. Um, even after Abbott lifted the statewide mask mandate, I think it was you know over two months ago, um, the TEA still left it up uh, to schools to have their own mask policies. Um, starting June 5th, this executive order gets rid of all of that and says that schools, public schools, um, you know, cannot require masks uh, on campus. And so that, I think, was probably the most uh, sweeping and consequential um, part of this announcement by Abbott on masks. Okay, so of course, schools are particularly notable because we had some CDC guidance earlier this or late last week, I guess, saying that people who are vaccinated can you know, be unmasked in, in crowds and in restaurants or various other places that they go. But of course, children, a large proportion of school-aged children, if you're under 12, you cannot get vaccinated yet. So, so what we're talking about here, Karen, is basically gatherings of people who, who, unless guidance changes between now and June 4th, will, you know, by definition, not be vaccinated. Yeah, that's correct. Um, and now, you know, the latest chatter I'm hearing about the, you know, under 12 kids getting vaccinated is, you know, potentially by the fall. Um, 
And <clears throat> you know how fluid those timelines can be. So, um, but the last I heard is that Pfizer is going to ask for that authorization in the fall. Um, but meanwhile, yeah, um, what you've got is a, an extra motivator. Um, state health officials are hoping at least um, to get as many adults and 12 and ups vaccinated as possible to reduce further the risk of transmission among, you know, zero to 11 year olds, which isn't that high to begin with. Um, certainly there are, uh, there are, uh, there, the science does support, you know, um, you know, that the mask wearing in schools cuts down on transmission. Um, so uh, with everybody out over the summer, it may not be an issue so much right now, um, but you do have uh, kind of an added onus now um, for the parents to decide what they're going to do regarding vaccinating their kids. They're 12 and up there. There's already been, you know, close to 70,000 kids, 12 to 15 who've been vaccinated just in the week that Pfizer authorized it for that age group. So, um, that's a pretty strong uptake. You're looking at about 95 or sorry, 97 to 98% of school kids are fully vaccinated with everything else. Um, so they're hoping that those kinds of factors combined with the timing of Pfizer to potentially get authorization for, you know, elementary school students, um, will, uh, will make it less of an issue in the fall since masks apparently won't be, um, won't be allowed or I mean, sorry, mask uh, mandates won't be allowed. They'll right. still be optional. Yeah. Parents yeah. always have the choice. Sure. Sure. And as a, the parent of a school age kid who, you know, masks up their kids each day before dropping them off at an AISD school, of course, you know, this won't be relevant for a lot of kids until the fall since, you know, most school ends in May and, and this order doesn't go into effect until June. But so we'll, we'll see what the atmosphere looks like, at right. least when, you know, the K through 12 schools go back. Uh, colleges and, and, and K through 12 schools have summer school as well, but, um, you know, a little bit different of a situation. Patrick, what was the reaction you saw um, to this order from, from you know, the, the education community yesterday? Yeah, you saw, for example, the Texas State uh, Teachers Association, you know, call this premature. And there were other education groups that had a similar take on it and said that they wish that Abbott would have waited until the CDC issued its own guidance for the upcoming school year uh, before, uh, you know, doing this as it relates to schools. Uh, when it came to, to local leaders in, in some of the, you know, state's large metropolitan areas, um, they were critical of it. They called it, uh, you know, Houston Mayor Sylvester Turner called it a clear overreach. Um, and they, you you know, continue to strongly encourage um, their residents to wear masks regardless of this um, latest executive order. Um, but by and large, though, they seem to accept it. And there were no signs that any, you know, city or, or local government was going to try to de defy this latest order and, you know, issue new mask mandates or continue to try to enforce existing mask mandates. So, again, I think the reaction among those local governments, um, you know, mostly run by Democrats was, you know, criticism, you know, they were critical, um, but they, you know, accepted that this is going to be the new reality they're going to have to operate under. Right. And, you know, the, just want to add to what Patrick, to what you said is that, I mean, there, it's, it's going to affect a, a certain number of counties, but there's plenty of counties in Texas where life's not going to change because of this really at all. You know, when I was driving out to Mount Pleasant last week where they're trying to get um, the people vaccinated out there, I, I stopped seeing masks in the convenience stores about 20 minutes outside of Austin all the way for the next five hours. There just was nobody until I got to South Dallas for a few minutes, you know. Um, so, yeah, you're right. It, it's a big effect on the uh, on some people, but I don't think it'll change life a lot in others. Yeah, and Karen, you wrote a little bit about how, you know, even some of those big cities, the Travis County, the Harris County governments have started to 
ease their sort of unofficial restrictions or advisories as well, you know, as, as we're seeing, you know, there was a lot of concern in, with Abbott's last order about, you know, lifting the mask order in March, but the trend line since then has, has been mostly in the positive direction when you look at cases and hospitalizations. Yeah, it has. And, and, and you've also, you know, you saw uh, Austin fight pretty hard to keep their mask mandate in place um, and go, were successful about that. But um, they were also among the, the big counties that were starting to roll their stuff back, you know, Monday and Tuesday, even before the announcement from Abbott. Um, and while it was going on, in fact, they were making their own announcements. So, um, you know, Harris County and um, maybe Dallas, I haven't really heard from them, so I don't know what they're planning on. But, um, you know, Harris County is reviewing it. Bear County has already, you know, said they're, you know, they'll follow the order. Um, Tarrant County is following the order. Um, so, you know, I mean, they were already kind of starting to head that direction anyway. And I think a lot of the motivation for them uh, on that front is, you know, encouraging people to, as, you know, County Judge Lena Hidalgo said, join the party. You know, um, life is so much better on this side. <laughs> sure. We, we should note, too, that the timing of this announcement as it relates to public schools, the, the kind of normal school year is, is, is obviously winding down for a lot of public school students in Texas. We you know, had this in our story yesterday, but the last day of school in the, the state's largest school district in Houston is, is June 11th, which would be you know just several days after the, um, this new executive order would go into effect for uh, public schools. Uh, now, obviously, there's, there is in-person summer school in some of these school districts, but um, I think it you know, stands to reason that um, you know, most public school students in Texas aren't going to full aren't going to feel the full effect of this until they return uh, in late summer, early fall. Patrick, was there a question asked to the governor or his team about like why now? Because uh, why make the announcement now? Because as we as we talk about, um, you know, some some counties were already getting rid of the mask mandates, you know, at their own pace, and we've seen that the governor has you know, left those decisions sometimes to the counties and sometimes not. It really depends on where he is politically. Um, but I guess it is a valid question for me in terms of like, why not just wait till we are closer to the start of the school year and see how things go for the summer um, to, to make the decision? Yeah, it is kind of curious timing, especially when you consider that the school year is winding down. Um, and, and you also, I, I hadn't personally heard of any local governments or governmental entities that had been gearing up to issue new mask mandates or anything like that. And so in that regard, you know, the timing doesn't seem particularly salient. Um, you know, Abbott has, you know, when we just talk about the sheer politics of it, you know, Abbott has continued to get, um, you know, criticism from just, you know, some on his right um, over the fact that he lifted the mask mandate um, back in uh, March, but there's, you know, still all these loopholes, uh, loopholes is what his critics would call them, but still all these loopholes um, that allow, for example, public school students to still be under mask mandates. Um, and so, you know, he could still be feeling some heat over that. Um, and this is, you know, that could explain the timing. All right. Um, Don, Don Huffines, I think, criticized him for some reason. I think I saw his tweets. Right, like, yeah, Don't his, celebrate governments for yeah, giving his, back rights they should have never taken away or something like that. Yeah, his one credible primary challenger, the uh, former Dallas State Senator Don Huffines, you know, reacted to this new executive order by saying we should have never had mass mandates in Texas in the first place. And so uh, politically, you know, that, that could be an explanation for the timing. Substantively, the timing is a little more uh, puzzling, I would say. 
Yeah, I mean, we've also just seen from Abbott lately a lot of positivity about what the the data says and things like that. You know, um, we had Sunday being the first time in a very long time where there were no reported deaths. I think that deserves a big asterisk right there because yeah. um, the various <laughs> a lot of counties don't report. Right. numbers anymore on Sundays. So it's That's not right. necessarily. Um, but that being said, the numbers are ticking down. I mean, the positivity rate, you know, the percentage of tests that are taken that come back positive is now below 4%, which is, you know, we were talking about in the low 20s at the, at the worst parts of this pandemic. And, and right. so there, there are definitely signs that we are in a different phase here and that, you know, the rollout of vaccination is working. Yeah, obviously, you know, the, the continued uh, decrease in some of these key metrics uh, could be playing into the timing here. And it seems like Abbott, if you just follow his public statements, it seems like he waited basically two months to take a victory lap on the statewide, lifting the statewide mask mandate and fully reopening the state. Um, you know, I think that happened on March 10th that went into effect. Um, and, you know, even though the numbers were, you know, for weeks were looking pretty promising and we're really setting them up for an I told you so moment, it wasn't until I think, you know, the past week or so, if you look at his Twitter account, that he actually started bragging about it. Um, he, to be clear, he had been bragging for a long time about our vaccination, what he saw, saw as our vaccination progress, but it wasn't until recently you started seeing him really publicly um, point to these numbers and, you know, saying that, you know, things uh, you know, did not turn out to be as dire as my critics predicted them to be. So um, it could be, you know, there, there could be some deliberate timing here that he just decided to wait um, to take a victory lap on some of that and, and, you know, roll out a new executive order. I think it's not, I think it's not coincidental also that um, this is when he makes the announcement about ending early ending of the federal unemployment um, payments too, um, signaling that it's safe to go back to work, that whatever about the mm -hmm. pandemic was keeping sure. you from working is over. Um, you have a month left. Um, and that back happened to normal. What, in the last 48, that's all, all this yeah. happened in the last like 48 hours, I guess. Right. Um, or late last week, maybe if I recall, but yeah. It, it, it's also worth noting, I mean, as we watch the numbers, that the other thing that's going down is the number of vaccine doses being administered each day. Karen, I mean, you've been writing a little bit about this. You went out to Mount Pleasant, as you already mentioned, to kind of look at the rollout of this. But um, can you talk a little bit about what you found about the challenges of getting people, particularly outside these big cities, to, to actually take the vaccine? I mean, it does seem like there's a lot of work ahead of the state in that regard. Sure. There, you know, you've got about half the people who are eligible uh, vaccinated. That leaves another, you know, 10 million on the table still um, who could conceivably who are eligible and still haven't for whatever reason gotten it. Um, it seems a lot of it is uh, barriers like convenience at this point, although there are some access issues still. Um, you know, there's people in places like Mount Pleasant that just couldn't get to a mass vaccination clinic an hour and a half away in Tyler or didn't want to or have the work hours that allowed them to make one of those crazy, you know, appointments that you never know when it was going to be. And they gave you the appointment. You couldn't decide, you know, so there's a lot of practical accessibility issues. And a lot of those are being, um, you know, were attacked by the people most eager to get the vaccine and were willing to wait all that time. And they were kind of the low hanging fruit and, um, you know, not to beat the metaphor too awfully hard. They're now going to the upper branches um, and trying to find the people who, for some, whatever reason, you know, um, just weren't in the initial rush. Um, so they always expected the slowdown and they expected it right about now, in fact. Um, so Karen, I found it really interesting in your story in that community, the public health leaders had kind of made a conscious decision that they were going to go after communities of color, people who maybe might want the vaccine, but don't 
you know, might have, have some kind of barriers, whether it's their job or, or the time or things like that to go get it, as opposed to, you know, what have, one of the biggest problems in the state, according to the polling that we've done, which is, you know, white conservatives, where those, those public health leaders kind of seem to make the decision that those folks were going to be harder to convince. Yeah, I think the state uh, health services doctor out there, Dr. Sharon Huff, said it really well when she said that, when I asked her that very question, she said, well, the, around here, the white people who wanted it have pretty much gotten it. The white people who haven't gotten it are either, you know, um, just kind of, you know, going to go get it at their doctor at some point, or they basically decided not to. And that's a much harder fight, is what she said. Um, given that the white evangelical churches um, really didn't seem that interested in getting involved in the outreach, um, because they're probably they're the same population that's least likely to want the shot, uh, the white conservative evangelical, you know, demographic. Um, you know, really the ones that um, have had the biggest, hardest hit by the pandemic and the hardest access to the vaccine have been the communities of color. And they have a very large population of um, Hispanic uh, immigrants in that population. The biggest, the most, the biggest percentage of Hispanics in that county of any of that 35 county area out in Northeast Texas, in fact, um, kind of a side note there. And so it behooved the county for them to go after the, the people that were more likely to get it and uh, needed the most help getting it. Um, so the language barriers, the access barriers, um, the barriers to you know immigration status, work status, um, that, that made them worry that they were gonna be busted by some immigration officer, even um, though they, they aren't, that's not what they're there for. Um, uh, all of that comes into play. So they had to do a very targeted approach to getting those people to come and it, it, it's working for them. You know, it's, you know, one at a time, two at a time. It's a slow crawl. (laughs) They have a long way to go. Indeed, indeed. All right, well, let's pause for a minute and hear from our sponsors. Texas Insight. Want real-time reporting of healthcare events within the legislative and regulatory branches of Texas's government? Join Texas Insight today at txinsight.com. And Raise Your Hand Texas. Listen to the new Raise Your Hand Texas podcast, Intersect Ed., where the stories of education policy and practice meet. Visit raiseyourhandtexas.org slash podcast. Okay, so as I mentioned, we are about 12 days out from the end of the legislative session, a legislative session that people continue to remark upon as being, you know, quite conservative, a lot of big, you know, conservative priorities passing or, or making their way through the, the legislature this session. Today, this Wednesday, the Governor Abbott signed into law a measure that would prohibit in Texas abortions as early as six weeks. Um, This is kind of the latest on the list of of, of measures moving forward that, you know, have brought some chagrin to Democrats. Um, But it's not just the Republicans who are pushing things through or helping things advance. James, I know that not necessarily related to this abortion bill, but you had a story about Harold Dutton, the uh, Democratic chair of the House Education Committee, uh, this week and about kind of the role he's played in some of these these issues. Can you tell us a little bit about what that story is and, and what you found? Yeah, so basically Harold Dutton is one of um, a few Democratic lawmakers in the House who had these plum key positions of like leading a powerful committee like public education is. Um, and so the hope was that if you have a Democrat in charge of such a powerful committee, you can bottle up a lot of the quote unquote, bad legislation that Democrats don't like um, that is pushed by Republicans, right? 
Um, that didn't end up being the case. Um, he's he's pushed through some some legislation and has even carried legislation on outcome based funding, which Democrats oppose. Um, he's a supporter of charter schools, which Democrats oppose. He let critical race the critical race theory ban get through his committee when he could have bottled it up. That one's been opposed by public education advocates and also uh, groups like the NAACP and, and, and other groups like that. Uh, but the thing that really got people riled up recently was his revival of Senate Bill 29, um, which would basically restrict transgender student athletes from participating uh, in sports um, because they're trying to make this part of the big culture war that there is against transgender people uh, in Texas, but really across the country, um, where, where I think transgender students would have to sign up to play on sports for the sex that they, they had on their birth certificate. Um, and that's a non-starter for transgender youth. Um, the, the reason this has caught so much attention and, and Dutton has caught so much fire is that the bill had already died, basically. Um, he gave it a voting committee, um, but one of the Republican lawmakers sort of walked out of the committee, so they didn't have the seven necessary votes to pass it. They were one short, um, and Dutton just voted not present, so he just like, let it go, and it died. Um, but then a couple of days later, one of his bills that had to do with Houston ISD um, and school takeovers by the Texas Education Agency got killed on the floor on a point of order, and the next day, suddenly, SB 29 was back in public education committee. So a lot of publication, public education advocates, transgender rights advocates um, are saying this is clearly retaliation against Democrats um, for killing your bill. Um, but the worst part about this is that you, you are doing your retaliation on the backs of transgender kids. Um, and so he's received a lot of criticism, very, very heavy criticism. And so our story was basically looking at, um, you know, Dunn's role as public ed chairman. And we talked to a lot of uh, groups uh, that would be uh, aligned with Democrats, you know, like public education activists, uh, LGBTQ groups, even his own local party, the Harris County Democrats, um, are none too pleased with Dutton's actions. And some people are even saying, we're going to primary him and we're not going to stand for this anymore because if he's not going to push through um, Democratic priorities or at least stand up against Republican priorities, what's the point of even having a Democratic chairman? Um, so he's, he's, he's tried to explain it by saying, hey, the way I run my committee is that if you've got the seven votes, I'm going to let you have that vote on your bill. You know, very Democratic, just that's sort of a will of the house thing for the TX Legendards out there who I'm sure are TX Legendards following um, <laughs> the TripCast. Um, so that's sort of his argument. Um, the activists, especially the LGBTQ advocates, activists that I talked to said, that doesn't really make any sense because he had already given it a vote. So why, why bring it back again on Friday? Um, and sort of that's where we are with Harold Dunn. You, you can either believe him that, he, you know, it's a, it's a sort of democratic process, you know, will of the house, you know, if you've got the votes, you're going to get the vote or that it's retaliation. So I think it's an open-ended question. I think we also are going to learn a lot about the fate of that bill in the next couple of days here. Um, there's important deadlines, obviously, to, towards passing that. And I think it's a waiting to get into the calendar. So we'll see. Yeah, I mean, it was a pretty amazing moment when that was passed out the 
you know, when it was brought up for a second time, because, you know, you, you talk about Dutton saying, if you get the votes, I'll pass it out on my committee. But I mean, he basically said in that committee hearing, you know, the bill that that was killed last night, referencing his bill, um, a which would allow, make it easier for TEA to do a state takeover of HISD and was opposed by a lot of Democrats in the chamber, you know, would affect a lot more children than the bill he was bringing up. And then, correct me if I'm wrong, James, but he cast the vote in favor of that SB 29 that, that got it out of committee. Well, he, he, he didn't. Dan Huberty oh. was present that time. Okay. And so they would have had it seven, six, but, but then he did sort of add onto the dog pile and made it eight to five. Gotcha. Um, so he, so he definitely came on and added the extra vote. Um, and that was another thing that people were critical about, right? Um, you know, it, it's one thing when Republicans are voting for that, obviously that's, that's something that their base wants. Uh, but when you, when you as a Democrat vote for that, and again, this is a national battle that's being had in other state legislatures. One LGBTQ advocate told me, you know, it's crazy to see a Democrat doing this because when we're in other states, fighting against this kind of stuff and saying, let's stop bullying trans youth. There's moderate Republicans and obviously the Democrats who are like, okay, we get it. Um, But to then have a Texas Democrat say, I'm going to side with the Republicans on this, then sort of adds fuel to the fire. And so then supporters of that bill can say, here's a Democrat that also supports it. Of course, Harold Dutton says the revised version of the bill, the the revived bill that he brought back that Friday, I think it was, um, had ha- had some amendments, which he thinks makes it way softer than the original bill that the Senate brought over. I think it codifies, he said that it codifies um, the current UIL rules, um, which he said won't really have that much effect. Uh, LGBTQ ad- ad- advocates differ on that. They say it's a little bit stronger than that, and it will actually have an effect on LGBT uh, or transgender kids. Um, so again, debate on that. Um, but there, there's certainly there's certainly Democrats and people who you think are normally aligned with Democrats who are not very happy with Harold Dutton right now. Sure. Patrick, I mean, we we watched this Harold Dutton's primary race last time. It was it was interesting. He, you know, he made it into a runoff in the Democratic primary in 2020. Of course, that was a pretty fascinating race because there ended up being a candidate who, you know, <laughs> for all intents and purposes didn't really exist that that caused him to get into that runoff but i mean this is someone who has been targeted by democrats before yeah i mean he's been targeted before uh because of uh you know him splitting a little bit with the party line when it comes to charter schools for example and for some of the positions on public education um and you know the houston isd takeover and so he was already um, you know, kind of uh, being targeted by some members of his party before this session, as evidenced by that uh, really topsy-turvy primary uh, last time around. And, you know, I expect he'll, he'll face, you know, primary, significant primary opposition again this time around. Um, so, you know, he, he is certainly an unconventional figure within the House Democratic Caucus right now. Yeah. Right, before tw- we go, Twitter is not real life, but I've, I've definitely seen <laughs> I've definitely seen people responding to our trip stories saying like I, I will support whoever primaries Harold Dutton. So I think he definitely is going to expect a, a tough challenge. And, you know, he had some colorful quotes in the story. So I don't think he's backing down. I think in his mind, he is doing the best he can for Houston ISD and for kids and in, in, in schools that need his help. Um, and he had a great, he had a great quote in the story of something like, if, if, if you see me running in a fight, I'm, I'm not running from, I'm, 
I'm chasing somebody. I'm not running. It's just a he's, great question. He's, so he's been ready. like that. Yeah, he's been like that for decades too. Right. I mean, right. this is not new behavior out of Harold exactly. Denton. He's never been. He's never been afraid of what the other Democrats do, and they lash him. You know, lash out at him regularly over the years. And I wasn't surprised at all to read any of those quotes in your story. <laughs> they sounded just like him. They certainly do. Yeah. All right. Before we before we run, I want to just run through a few of the big bills that are still kind of making their way through the legislature this session. We already mentioned the abortion bill, SB8, um, that was signed by Abbott today. Patrick, I thought you had an interesting note on Twitter about this, about how, you know, this is another sign of this conservative session, because in past session, you know, even folks like Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick had, had not necessarily thrown their weight behind that kind of um, legislation. Yeah, I mean, there was an interview that Patrick gave in May 2019, so two years ago to this month, uh, where he said that, you know, he acknowledges a lot of discussion about, quote, heartbeat bills in the in the pro-life arena, he said, but it's not the highest priority, he said, um, especially because it would probably ultimately be settled by Supreme Court of the United States, um, you know, and so we go from that, and even, and it should be noted that, you know, even back then in the 2019 session, you know, I, I don't recall Abbott, you know, ever being asked about this or, or, you know, volunteering a position on it. So even, you know, two years ago, we had Dan Patrick downplaying the need for this kind of legislation and Abbott being totally MIA on it, quite frankly, uh, to Abbott, um, you know, to this getting through both chambers, making it to Abbott's desk and Abbott signing it um, before the session's even over this time. And so I think, you know, it's another example along with permitless carry uh, of how much the ground uh, has shifted under some of these, uh, you know, hot button conservative priorities this session. Um, you know, we all know the trajectory at this point, we've talked about the trajectory of, of uh, you know, how far permitless carry has come. I mean, just last session, you know, the speaker, um, you know, declared it dead after activists, you know, went to his home to lobby for it. And so, and now we have it um, in a conference committee and the governor saying that uh, he would sign it. And so these are just two big examples, I think, at the end of the session here about how um, far to the right um, lawmakers are, are tacking. Yep, that's right. And of course, the SB8, the, the abortion bill, really kind of sets up what we can expect to be a court battle over this. Um, one right. of the interesting dynamics of the law is that uh, it kind of puts private citizens in charge of enforcing. They can file lawsuits against abortion providers for, for violating the law, um, as opposed to, you know, the federal government. But I think we can be pretty certain that there will be legal challenges against this law in the coming months before it goes into effect in September. Uh, James, another bill we're watching is the elections bill, SB7. Uh, tell us where we are with that one. Yeah, conference committee as well. Um, there was some criticism uh, from groups like NAACP and LULAC, which are groups um, groups that represent uh, African-Americans and Latinos, because the conference committee uh, members in the Senate were all white, uh, given the history of racial discrimination and, and voting um, in the state, the history of that in the state. Uh, so there's some criticism there and, and just the criticism that this bill has received. It's, it's been likened to Jim Crow laws. So um, there was some criticism of that in the Senate, but now the House has set their conferees today, a much more diverse group. Um, it includes an Asian American, uh, uh, a black member of the House of Representatives and a Latino member of the House of Representatives. So I think they're, they're, uh, the House is trying to send a little bit more of a diverse body in response to that. 
Um, and so they'll hash that out behind closed doors. Uh, there was a story in the Texas Monthly that said that Democrats sort of behind the scenes had tried to soften that bill as well, SB7. Um, so it remains to be seen if if the House conferees are going to you know, hold up their end of the bargain. I imagine that Democrats will be none too happy um, if they did all that work for nothing uh, and they, they just get handed down the Senate version uh, back. So that, that'll be interesting to watch. And it all kind of brings back memory of that SB4 debacle where the Democrats, you know, messed up, messed up a deal on it. And so now the Democrats think they've got a, the House Democrats think they've got a deal on it and they're waiting to see if, if that's going to hold in, in conference committee. So uh, it's going to be interesting. And uh, I'm not sure when they plan it. They just announced a House conferees today. So I'm not sure how long it'll take to work out. That's right, I mean, the clock is ticking. Do we, do we know the specific provisions that that may lead to the most uh, debate in, in conference committee, things that the House may have stripped out that the Senate wants back in? Well, I think they stripped out a lot of the poll watcher stuff, yeah. uh, which 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 uh, the the groups like the NAACP and LULAC and MALDEF um, had issues with. And also because it just it just it was contradictory to federal law uh, mm-hmm. on poll watchers. So uh, the Senate may want to reintroduce that um, and test it, but I think the the House has stripped that out. Um, I haven't followed it as closely anymore since I since I joined the trip because we have a voting rights expert here in Alexa Vera. <laughs> so so that's the that's the Passing main the one buck. I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, yeah get, get Alexa on here. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think you know it'll be very interesting in these next two weeks to watch how our new Speaker Dade Phelan and our Lieutenant Governor get along because they've been operating very independently so far this session and now we're at the position where with the budget, with the voting bill, um, with the uh, constitutional carry bill, a lot of the really big, most important issues of this session, um, you know, some of this uh, storm uh, damage stuff isn't in conference committee, but it's, they're really going to have to get on the same page about how they're going to get through it. Um, and we'll see how they get along and how they get to those solutions in the next two weeks. And, and that's going to have a really big say on kind of what the final chapter is, what the, the real kind of impact of this legislative session are. Um, we'll be keeping a close eye on it. Um, and thank you to James, Patrick, and Karen for walking us through this. Thank you to Justin and Michael Ray, our producers. And thank you to our sponsors, Invest Texas Council, the Texas State Technical College, the LBJ Presidential Library, Texas Insight, and Raise Your Hand Texas. We'll talk to you all next week. <laughs>